0: Welcome to this edition of the Freshfields podcast. My name is Kate Goff, and I'm counsel in our London office where I advise clients on global projects disputes and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Tim Harkness who is a partner in our New York office and Moritz Becker a partner in our Dusseldorf office. Both of whom specialise in a variety of litigation including contract disputes and today we are going to talk about adjustment of long-term contracts. So uh, to kick off Perhaps should we talk about why the adjustment of long-term contracts is a hot topic at the moment? Perhaps, Tim, do you want to give us your thoughts?
1: Absolutely. Well, we're seeing a bunch of things. Some of them are COVID-19 specific, where there's a specific disruption in something like a supply chain or a particular relationship. But more broadly, we're seeing contractual relationships put under pressure because the fundamental economic underpinnings of contractual relationships pretty much in every sector, are being disrupted. And when you have this kind of economic disruption, you have some companies really wanting to get out of their long-term contracts and others trying to lock them in. So we've handled dozens of disputes over the last 12 months. Uh, Some of them have gone into full-fledged litigation or arbitration, and some of them have resulted in renegotiation that stem from these kind of economic dislocations. So that's really what we're seeing driving re-examination of long-term contracts. I
0: don't know if um, Moritz, do you have a, a similar perspective or different experience?
2: We have, after 2020, a year of unprecedented financial, political and economical turmoil, a period where parties will again have to look at their contracts. The past year, we've seen a lot of glossing over, if I'm allowed to say that, because governments, for very good reasons, have... Um, Done their best all over the world to keep the economy afloat. But it's to be expected that this will change. And then parties, just as Tim said, will have to reevaluate the viability of their contracts and will have to find out if they can continue performing the contracts as they did or if an amendment of such contracts would be a good option.
0: In the United Kingdom, when this was all starting, it was all very uncertain. I think that our expectation was we were going to see a lot of disputes very quickly and including around long-term contracts and particularly parties seeking to get out of their obligations or renegotiate or even terminate. But we, we didn't actually really see that. We saw people behaving in a way that was very collaborative you know, working together to try to find a way to kind of get over what was, I think, perceived to be quite a a short-term, potentially short-term issue. It's now that we're really seeing our clients coming to us and asking for advice about renegotiating and looking at their
1: longer-term prospects. We're definitely seeing some people saying, all right, this is a chance for us to reset. We can scrap contracts we didn't like pre-pandemic or parties saying, you know, the new normal is going to fundamentally change. The way my industry runs and so while things might be okay now once the stimulus packages end people are going to have to reposition or, or face economic difficulty
0: so perhaps we could now go on to talk about the key elements of the legal framework in the different jurisdictions that sits behind adjustment of long-term contracts
2: in germany we do have as a background Statutory provisions stating broadly that whenever there is a fundamental change of the circumstances which are relevant to your contracts and when this could lead to a situation where the allocation of risks between the parties is just not fair anymore, to put it very broadly, then there could be a claim for the the aggrieved party uh, to readjust the, the contract. And then, against the background of this uh, statutory provision, there is um, a contractual practice where you find a lot of clauses dealing with the adjustment of long-term contracts governed by German law. And those could be very broad clauses like called adjustment clauses, basically repeating the statutory provision I just mentioned earlier. And at times there are more specific clauses um, called negotiation clauses which set out a pathway, a framework for the discussion between the contractual parties how to
0: adjust a contract. I don't know if, Tim, what the situation is like over
1: in the US. You know, it is very, very different. There are some statutory frameworks that might apply, but usually you're dealing with the contract itself. We're really seeing these renegotiation scenarios coming into three stages. The first is sort of the preliminary skirmishing, where you have different parties testing each other. And very frequently, the testing is actually not happening at the lawyer level. It's happening between contractual counterparties. It can be the shipping people. It can be the the operations people who are supposed to uh, arrange for the delivery acceptance of goods or services, that kind of thing. And a lot of times we're coming in you know, four or five emails into a correspondence. And when the lawyers look at it, we said, of course, someone's trying to set up a fight. The second stage is really the escalation phase where parties have dusted off their contracts. They've looked at their terms. They've seen, am I in New York? Because if I'm New York, maybe I can use uniform commercial code provisions that usually apply to the shipment of goods To services, too, because New York law tends to be pretty broad. Am I in California, where there's a different statutory framework that might apply in a force majeure kind of context? Uh, Am I in Louisiana, where we have the Napoleonic Code? You know, there are all sorts of different jurisdictional decisions you have to make. Most things are getting resolved in the escalation phase, but towards the end. And then, you know, our people, do they have a credible threat of litigation? In which case, that's helpful for focusing the mind and trying to come up to some reasonable terms. And then the last stage is all-out conflict. We did a, an expedited arbitration that we started last March, three weeks into COVID. We had terminations back and forth, and we went to a full-scale hearing by July. So we've definitely seen clients re- willing to go all the way quickly. I think that's more akin to what, to what I would kind of
0: describe the situation as as here in in England I suppose the kind of two questions that we fundamentally are dealing with which is you know well what do you want and what have you got ultimately do they just want to get out like completely or do they want some kind of change in performance or price or or something like that you know which of those two worlds really are we in and then generally what you've got is your contract depending on the particular industry depending on the particular type of contract depending on depending on the, who the counterparties are um, if you're looking at you know the contract terms you know is there going to be anything in there that really applies to this circumstance a bit, a bit like you're fighting at the beginning Tim right at the beginning we saw a bit of force majeure but going back and forth I think that's harder now and those clauses have started to change in any event we have provisions called hardship clauses in some of our contracts that might help you doesn't tend to get you out of performance it just means that you can renegotiate some of the terms to to take into account the situation at hand and then obviously just need to look at your termination provisions that might help you kind of get out altogether. so yeah i think ours is a two-stage yeah what what do you want what have you got and then what can you do about it i suppose is the next one and i think the reality is you know commercial negotiation to start with and then you need to look at what disputes can do to support you and if you are really happy to to press that
1: button In the United States, of course, we have the backdrop of discovery because any case might ultimately end up with the exchange of emails and all sorts of other things. And so that's another thing we're doing quite a bit in the early stages, saying, okay, you know, you've had us look at the contract. That's all well and good. You've given us four or five of those emails that went back and forth before the lawyers got involved. But what else is there out there that we don't know about? So we have done, in a number of cases, a bit of a mini discovery exercise using artificial intelligence mostly to try to find out what kind of correspondence is there. Did one of the parties make a, a key admission or did they waive a key right at some point? So, you know, you have to know what kind of cards you have in your hand. And in the United States... You know, part of that is going to be the evidentiary record that goes back and forth. And sometimes we found really, really helpful stuff for our clients. And we can go into negotiation knowing that we have a waiver of a key right or a concession from an adversary. Or other times we go into negotiation knowing maybe our client didn't document it quite the way they should. One of the key takeaways that we've learned in the last 12 months is understanding your documentary record is critical. And so, you know, at the first whiff of a breakdown in a contract, it's important for litigators to be involved, to help the business shape the record. We had a case recently where for nine months, we were helping our like lying business people create the right record. So when the other side finally escalated, we went to the meeting and said, this is over. Case was over six months ago because your guys made a great, you know, made a key concession that, you know, guts your your legal right." So- you know, that was helpful for focusing the mind and got to a much more sensible outcome because of that. Most of what you said is also,
2: despite the differences in the legal framework, uh, is also applicable to Germany. What we've experienced there again and again is that discussions started at the lower level in the hierarchy be, between commercial counterparts and then the discussions were sometimes very blunt and direct and parties have just have to be careful of whatever they admit or concede what kind of statements they make in this uh, stage of discussions and correspondence can be um, detrimental to their case at a later stage to give you an example if a writes to b in a discussion look i understand that this contract has now become given the, the the these recent events unbearable for you guys but that's your problem from a commercial standpoint this might make sense commercially to make that statement but can be very difficult in terms of uh, depending on what language you have in the uh, contract adjustment clause or uh, depending on what German case law for that matter applies to the case. So I think our advice as well here in Germany to clients contemplating renegotiating their contracts or expecting a request from a counterparty is to be very careful in the way they correspond and to be mindful that um, the, this kind of discussions has also a legal uh, background which can you know, give the other parties levers in uh, negotiations or even lead to a defeat or victory in a, a litigation.
0: It is an incredibly challenging situation for people wanting to have open commercial discussions and to recognize the complexities and the difficulties that everyone is under. But as you say, the documentary record that sits behind the
1: position is is so important. Absolutely. We've seen in a number of the bigger supply uh, situations where you cross multiple borders, there might be multiple contracts that have different choice of law provisions. So actually choosing your venue can also be outcome-determinative. We've worked uh, with our colleagues both in London and in Germany to discern, well, does it make sense? Should we bring an action in New York or should we bring an action in Frankfurt?
0: We've obviously talked quite a bit already about some of the really key differences between the different jurisdictions, but do you think that there is anything else that we should all be aware of? Germany seems to
2: be the odd child in this uh, group here from a legal standpoint. Uh, So one important uh, thing to bear in mind is that there's also a duty on the party receiving the request for uh, adjustment of a contract, not just to flat out refuse a negotiation. Your counterparty comes to you and says, I want to adjust our contract. It's, of course, your liberty to say, no, I don't want to adjust the contract. But you have to be mindful of the consequences of this refusal. But because this might end up in a scenario where the other party can unilaterally determine the new
1: clauses of the contract in that respect. Yeah, I think the the other things I would point out really are are mostly practical things that we've learned. And some of these things began pre-pandemic, but they've accelerated. One of them is the recording of commercial conversations, which is a crime in many parts of the world, but is permissible in the United States. And now the, the rules vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but in New York, for instance, all you need is one party to a conversation consenting to the recording. So if I call you and I've consented to record the whole conversation, I don't have to tell you, and that's perfectly permissible. And so we're seeing it happen where, and we started seeing this pre-pandemic, but now with the age of Zoom, where recording's so simple, we're seeing it more where you know we're in a negotiation to say, no, 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 but you said, and then they play the tape. And uh, which is quite shocking for people. Number two is that we've seen, particularly, some of our English clients have a "without prejudice" conversation. Well, the words "without prejudice" means something completely different in the United States, um, and so they're having conversations that they think are confidential, and then they see them in a court pleading, and they're shocked to find out. And we've seen it the other way, where we have you know Americans going to places like Germany or France, and, and acting in a way that's perfectly permissible in the United States as you know as as a, a sharp practice, for instance, or a tough negotiation that is not permitted in the other jurisdictions. People are now much less formal about where they communicate. You know, because before, if you're gonna have a negotiation in one jurisdiction, you know, you're getting on a plane and you're going there and you're very aware that you're in a new place. But now with uh, so many many teleconferences via video, people are just like, okay, I'm just going to operate as if I'm in my own country when, in fact, I'm really not for jurisdictional or contract purposes. It's really interesting
0: to hear you talk about without prejudice privilege and what that doesn't mean in the States or what it does mean, because I think that is those those types of day-to-day, well-understood concepts under English law where you would have that Sitting alongside any potential dispute under your contract, you may well have a completely confidential, without prejudice, workstream to talk about what deal, what settlement could be reached in the context of that dispute that would never be put in front of the court. It may be for costs or enforcement later, but you know the substance of that would never be in front of the court. In, in Germany, for for legal reasons as a starting point, it
2: can be important what the parties have. Discussed and envisaged uh, at the time they negotiated and then concluded the contract, and because uh, you know, as the name "long-term contract" suggests, those contracts have a long life span. So it can be really difficult to uh, find out what the parties have indeed discussed at the time the contract was concluded, and you know, to make the case that this is something they, the parties, have not envisaged. As a potential scenario at the time they concluded the contract. Is this th- something you had to deal with as well in the in England or the US?
0: Maybe I'll take take the UK first, this time as a comparison. But you know, generally, when you interpret kind of the, the meaning of an, an English law-governed contract, you know, it's it's the words of the agreement on the page. But it's not, you know, the original pre-contractual negotiations that give those words their meaning. And that is sometimes I think quite a surprise to some of our clients who are not coming from a from an English law perspective.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of in between in the United States. I mean, technically our rule is exactly the same as the English rule, but we do like our discovery in the United States. So what happens is if there's an ambiguity of a term or an arguable ambiguity, then people can seek to put in what we call parole evidence. And it can be very f- wide ranging And the openness of a court to consider parole evidence really varies by jurisdiction and in some jurisdictions by judge. So again, where you have your fight often dictates how much of that you're going to get into, you know, the folks in Delaware tend to be very strict constructionists and, you know, you live with the words on the page, you know, I've had a couple judges in New York who say, yeah, let's dive in and really examine what what were you talking about 20 years ago when you entered into this contract? And, you know, it's funny, when I first started practicing, we didn't have email, but now there was plenty of email and um, we get to look at it all. And so one of the things, you know, we have to sort through are what are people's recollection? What were the emails exchanged? And the other thing we're seeing quite a bit is people calling the good faith of different parties into question looking at pre-pandemic correspondence saying you were trying to negotiate your way out of this contract prior to covid-19 and now you're all of a sudden you know you've become health conscious and you don't want to have any of your people in the office to accept delivery of our goods and that's just a pretext and and so while you might have a technical argument under the contract you're doing it in such abject bad faith And we can prove that from your pre-COVID correspondence that I don't care what we talked about 20 years ago. What I talked to you about 20 months ago makes it pretty clear that you're a bad person and I'm going to bring that to the court's attention. This again
2: confirms the experience that if you are a party which contemplates um, adjusting a contract that you've concluded, you, irrespective of the legal framework of various jurisdictions, you have to... Uh, prepare as thoroughly and as detailed and as reasonable as possible, because this will not only help you in being successful in the commercial discussion, but also because it lays the groundwork for the litigation, which is a possibility, at least in a scenario like this.
0: So I just wanted to say thank you so much to both Tim and Moritz for a really interesting discussion. And I also wanted to direct our listeners to our podcast channel, Um, for more insights on um, contractual and litigation issues.